0: Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But, like the coaches didn't know anything about it. So we were like going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one-yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him. Because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. Which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your camera <laughs> out. I'm like, ah! Oh. Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment, but they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid. Although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. Wide receiver Justice Miller. Like nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because like he's never been like cool or popular and he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I, I kind of went from being somebody like mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Olivet, Michigan.
1: There's a lot to, uh, to like about that video. <laughs> the story Uh, the, The themes that we'll experience in our passage today just got reflected in that video. But I want you to imagine Keith's life for just a minute. Disabled, awkward, lonely, rejected. His parents grieving things that Keith may not even be aware of. Relationships that he'll never have. Athletic or intellectual achievements that will never happen. There's a lot of pain there. Pain that some of us understand, but all of us can imagine. But we see hope in the story too. We see loving kindness in action. We see the selfless character of the team doing something for Keith that he could never hope to do on his own. We see their kindness towards him and their pursuit of him and giving him a gift that he hadn't earned and he could never repay, transforming him, at least briefly, in the the scheme of high school hierarchy, from a nobody into somebody. In a way, at least briefly, they took on his disabilities, his awkwardness, they absorbed it, they covered his weakness, and in return, they gave Keith something. They gave... Him, their athletic ability, their celebration, their joy, their reputation, their community, and even their protection. They gave him a seat at their table. But as beautiful as that picture is, we know it's limited. The mom said, as long as he's in high school, somebody's got his back. It's incomplete. It makes us long for something more. So then our passage today, how much more Mephibosheth. We, we will see the loving kindness of, of King David. We'll see that because of his character, because of his covenant love for his friend Jonathan, that he will pursue Mephibosheth in order to show him loving kindness. And even though Mephibosheth is a man who could be considered David's enemy, a man lame in both feet, who would have no ability or even desire to come to the king, we will see King David restore him. We will see King David adopt him, giving him a seat at his table just like one of his sons. Mephibosheth, that story too is beautiful, but it's limited. It's temporary. We need something more. So what about you this morning? Some of you are hurting. Some of you are broken. Some of you are spiritually disabled. You keep repeating the same sin over and over and over to the point that you doubt the Father's love for you. Your marriage is broken, your child is rebellious. Your job is lost. There's no end in sight for your depression or your chronic pain. We don't need to look very far into our own hearts or lives to know that we're Keith. We are Mephibosheth. We know that we need a king to tell us not to fear. We need a king to pursue us out of our pit. We need a king to restore us. We need a king to adopt us. And we need that king to tell us that that this love, this love is forever. It won't be over the next time you sin. It won't be over the next time you fail. It will be with you no matter what. While I'm alive or after I'm dead, we need to hear the king tell us that we will always have a seat at his table. As a son, as a daughter, forever. Forever. But the question for us this morning is, where do we find a king like that? And if there is a king like that, how can I trust him? What would move him to show me loving kindness? So we'll find some answers to the questions this morning in our passage. What moves the king to act? The answer to that is the main point of chapter 9. The character of the king moves him to act. We see this in verse 7. It's a great summary. We see see the king's character, and we see his loving kindness in action. Verse 7, And David said to him, he's talking to Mephibosheth, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. The character of the king moves him to action. So last week, Chris walked us through the victories that, that King David had over all of his enemies, everybody that he subdued. And then there was this interesting verse right in the middle of, of chapter 8 where we saw that David ruled his people with justice and, and equity. We got to see David's heart. And really, this, this chapter, chapter 9, is just this snapshot picture of what that looks like in the kingdom of of David. I love this this context. This word has said that's that's King David's character and his heart. In our text, it's translated as kindness. But man, that's that's a that's a weak word. What do you think of when, when you hear kindness? In the South, I think you know what I pull up to the four way stop and no, you go ahead. <laughs> you go ahead. That, that's you know that's that's maybe our view of of, of kindness, right? But. But our English word, it doesn't come close to showing everything that's bound up there. Has said it's this full, rich, multi-layered concept. It means covenant love, loyal love, steadfast love, or loving kindness. It's one of the main ways that God describes himself to his people, a God of steadfast covenant love. We see the importance of that because it gets repeated three times in our text in verse 1. 3 and 7, I want to show kindness. I'm going to show kindness. I'm showing you kindness. So when you hear that word, I want you to think more of No, you go ahead. You take my place in line. You go through the stop sign. It's so much deeper than that in Scripture. The king's character of chesed or loving kindness moves him to action. And that plays out in our passage today, ensuring that Mephibosheth has a seat at the table, just like a son for all his days. A seat at the king's table, it represents access, intimacy, relationship, protection, adoption. The seat at the table, we see how important it is because it's repeated in verses 7, 10, 11, and 13. You will have a seat at my table. You will have a seat at my table. You will sit at my table always. Always, Mephibosheth sat at the king's table. The author really wants us to get this. So we've got three actions in our Text today that show the king's loving kindness. One, the king's loving kindness is shown in his pursuit of us, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 6. The king's loving kindness is shown in his restoration of us in in verses 7 through 10. The king's loving kindness is shown in his adoption of us, 11 through 13. So our first point, the king's loving kindness is shown in his pursuit of Mephibosheth and us. So think all the way back. If you've got your Bible, you can flip back to to chapter 4 in in 2 Samuel. This is when we first hear of Mephibosheth. We read this tragic event that happens when the caregiver finds out that Jonathan and Saul have been killed in battle. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in, in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. It's so easy for our hearts to go out to Mephibosheth. Just think for a minute of the dark reality of, of his life. He's hurt. He's disabled through absolutely no fault of his own. His grandfather and father killed in battle. He's likely on the run. He's isolated, he's rejected, abandoned, unsure of where provision or protection will come from. It makes sense to us that that the king would, would see that and his heart would go out to him. He would have sympathy for Mephibosheth. He'd want to show him kindness due to the circumstances of his life. But David's motivation, it's so much deeper than just sympathetic feelings. His motivation to show kindness rests on something much more secure than sympathy and need. We talked about David's first motivation. His first motivation is his character, his said, loving kindness. A second reason that David pursues Mephibosheth has everything to do with his dad, Jonathan. We see that in verse 1, right? David desires to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. That covenant love is precisely what you had between Jonathan and David. Jonathan saw David for who he was, the future king. He saw him as his dearest friend, even while his dad was trying to kill him. 1 Samuel 20, this is Jonathan speaking in verse 14. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love. Exact same word in our passage today for kindness. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The king's loving pursuit is based on his character, but it's secured because of his covenant. Take a closer look at this pursuit, though. The king is pursuing who? He's pursuing an enemy. The he's a member of the house of Saul. This doesn't even make any sense. He would rightly be viewed as an enemy. What's been going on between these two houses for the last few years? Threats, war, deception, lies, betrayal, murder. The king is pursuing an enemy, and it highlights his loving kindness. We see this in verse 5. The king, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, that's interesting. It means no pasture or not having. So we have a king pursuing an enemy who has nothing to offer. Mephibosheth is not even able to come to David. And really he doesn't want to. And why would he doesn't want to come to him? Why would he? Mephibosheth has every reason to be afraid. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Fear fear to come to the Lord that you feel like just stands over you in punishment or condemnation. You read chapter 9 and you see that Mephibosheth falls on his face to pay homage to this king, and the first time he does it, it's completely out of fear. He knows he's thought of as an enemy, but he doesn't yet know the heart of the one who seeks him. He has no idea the kindness that King David is placing upon him has covenant love at its foundation. The king's loving kindness isn't short-lived. It isn't arbitrary. It isn't dependent upon Mephibosheth. This loving kindness, this covenant love, it's unconditional. Or rather, it is conditional, really, on this covenant that he made with David, Jonathan and David's covenant. So do you see yourself in Mephibosheth's story yet? our situation, it was far worse than Mephibosheth, which shows the character of our king even more fully. It makes his loving kindness, his pursuit and rescue of us that much more remarkable. We weren't just disabled, right? We weren't just lame in both feet. We were spiritually dead, enemies of his, and yet he pursues us. He pursued us, while we were ungodly with an unrelenting love. We were desolate. We were desperate. Yet he restores us. We were spiritual orphans. Yet King Jesus adopts us into the family of God. But let's let's be honest, if we're if we're looking at this, we think, well, you know, maybe, maybe King David was just kind of stuck with Mephibosheth. He's just kind of Luck of the draw, man, this is who I get to show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan. And we think, ah, oh, you know, David, he's a, he's a good guy. He begrudgingly honors his agreement. We might be tempted to think that, brothers and sisters, because if we're honest, sometimes we think Jesus is stuck with us. Sometimes we think we aren't worth saving. We're in the pit, we can't see the light, we can't feel his presence. I want you to soak in the truth of the Word of God for just a minute. Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before time began. He predestined us for adoption to himself before we were born. He isn't stuck with you. He chose you. And while David had to ask of Mephibosheth, where is he? God has known for all time who you are where you are, and whose you are. And just like David, our king's choosing of us is rooted in his character, in an eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It isn't dependent on us. Thank God. If it was dependent on us, let me speak for me, if it was dependent upon me, I would mess it up. I would mess it up. It's really good news. This isn't theoretical. It's not just academic. It's not just the the theological covenant of the day that preacher man's throwing out. I don't want you to compartmentalize this into, well, that's really, it's neato to know. I've written this down, eternal covenant, Uh, or to be proud of me. This is relevant to your life. The the eternal covenant within the Trinity matters in the darkest places. When you are alone and you think that nobody is listening, nobody can understand what it is that you're going through, you were purchased before all time. John 17, it it summarizes this covenant as the Father giving Jesus a people to redeem. The, The nature of this covenant and loving kindness it's it 's very personal, according to Ephesians one, it was the Father who personally chose you before the world was made to give you as a gift to jesus so it 's not like Jesus is registered at target, you know, and he 's probably boycotting target, I guess i don 't know, but it 's not like he 's He's registered at Target and then the Father shows up with the toaster and the Holy Spirit walks in with the same toaster and they're kind of looking at each other like, oh man, really? No, that's not what's going on here. Jesus, the Trinity is not stuck with you. They chose you. You are the gift the Father gave the Son, church. You're not just the wedding gift, you're the bride. Nothing about you earned this gift, could repay this gift or could change this gift because we had nothing to do with it. Let that light shine in those dark places. Let the light shine of the promise amongst the Trinity that changes everything for you. God's pursuit of you will never end. You're secured by the Father's promise to the Son. You're secured by the blood of the Son. And you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. This can never be undone. Could there ever be, I mean, we're asking the question, where is this king? What is he like? There could never be an example of of better loving kindness, better pursuit than this. He's right here. The king is right here. His name is Jesus. So look at the freedom. When we aren't confused about God's love for us, when we aren't doubting it, when we realize his loving kindness has been permanently set upon us, what does that do to you? How does that make you feel? Does it make you know and think? It means that we're free. We're free to go, to do, to work. Who are we pursuing with the love of Christ? Since we've been loved in this way, are we loving others in this way? Has it, has it changed us? Who's the unbeliever that you're reaching out to? The outcast, I'm talking about the annoying guy in in the cube at the corner at work that you walk by and it just always kind of smells funny. You don't want to talk to him. Who are you pursuing that's annoying, that's abrasive? The, the, The spouse that you've grown cold towards. The rebellious child that you've almost given up on. Since we've been pursued with an unrelenting covenant, love, brothers and sisters, gird up your loins, grab your robe. In other words, pack your stuff and let's go. Let's go and pursue. Whether your motivation is, is, is out of gratitude, out of duty, out of delight, we are to pursue others and show them love and kindness. Not only attempting to help with emotional needs like, like Keith or physical needs like Mephibosheth, but pointing them to the true king, where their ultimate needs will be met at the foot of the cross. So our king, the king doesn't stop with pursuit. He also restores. He shows his loving kindness in restoring Mephibosheth and restoring us. The second half of verse 7 we read, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Verses 9 and 10, it gives us specifics on what this looks like. Then the king called Ziba. You can just go ahead and add Ziba to the list of notorious Zs, right? We got the Ziphites, we got Ziklag, and we got Ziba. This dude's shady. He's he's a little snaky. He's he's not been doing what he's supposed to be doing for Mephibosheth. Look at his house and compared to where Mephibosheth is. Ziba's got his own servants. He's not been doing what he should be doing. Saul's servant, Ziba, and he said to him, all that belonged to Saul... And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And your, you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. You can't overstate this. What this would have meant for uh, Mephibosheth. I don't know what this is. Pew, pew. All right. that, just, okay. What this would have meant for Mephibosheth, literally his life and death. Hanging in the balance. There, there weren't economic programs, right? 3,000 years ago, they're like, hey, you know, we, we are the social program that takes care of people with, with lame feet. 3,000 years ago, this was likely at some point a death sentence. He's gone from an enemy of the king to having Saul's land returned to him, Saul's servants returned to him, and orders from the king for those servants to serve Mephibosheth. It's an extraordinary turn of events for him. How? By the word of the king from Lodabar, having nothing to being restored. Mephibosheth is learning that King David backs up his intent to show kindness with real action. The king is showing himself. He's proving himself to be trustworthy to someone who could rightly fear him greatly. But we long for more. Mephibosheth's restoration is only partial. It's land and it's provision. And as generous as that is, it's incomplete. Look at the very end of the chapter, the last verse. The author reminds us Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. Even though he's sitting at the king's table, the pain remains, the wound remains, the trauma remains. It's incomplete. For believers in Christ, our restoration isn't one of land and wealth, but it is one of provision and beyond. We're not only sealed by the Holy Spirit, but Scripture tells us that Jesus sent us the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of us, not only restoring us, but making us new and transforming us to be more like Christ. I mean, it's like the best episode of Fixer Upper ever. I mean, you've got the... Man, I didn't want to fall for that show, but I mean, when Heather has it on all the time, it's like, all right... Chip and joanna they are pretty funny. I like their interaction. But who needs them when you've got the Trinity? The Trinity, or the third person of the Trinity specifically living inside of us to restore, to transform, to seal, to convict, to empower. That's here and now, but what about future? Ephesians 2 tells us, Let's start around verse 5. By grace you've been saved. Now, now listen for the restoration of future hope. That was loving kindness. By grace you've been saved. And raised as up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I realize I read that awkwardly, so stick with me. We're seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's our restoration mean? We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places presently, and we will be forever. What we see here is there's no limit to God's grace and loving kindness in the person of Jesus Christ. It's immeasurable according to verse 7. That's where our hope is. Our king's kindness isn't temporary. It isn't limited. We can't even measure it. His grace and kindness towards us. I mean, anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? I want to go. Okay, great. Three of you. Never mind. Anybody ever been to the beach? (laughs) A few more. All right. uh, Anybody ever walked outside at night and looked up into the sky? All right. So there's, there's three things there that we would look at and say, That's vast. I mean, we don't go to the Grand Canyon, we don't look up at the stars to think, man, I'm cool, I'm something. I mean, it reminds us of our own finitude, your $2 uh, preacher word of the week. It, it reminds us of our own limits. We see in the Grand Canyon, we see in, in the vastness of the ocean or the vastness of the universe, things that are enormous. But do they have limits? They do. So I can't even come up with something that's immeasurable other than the grace and loving and kindness of God given to us in Christ Jesus. That's something that will never end. When we look at Mephibosheth and, and his restoration, we can tell from the passage that it's primarily one of being served, right? He's in the role of, of receiving graciously, but he's receiving what the king has done for him. But what about us? It's true that we are to receive what God has done for us, but part of our fuller restoration is we're restored to act. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which who prepared? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the irony of that when it's compared with what we see in 2 Samuel 9. the, The lame in feet, us spiritually disabled, us spiritually dead, enemies, Restored to walk in in good works. What are the good works that we're to walk in? From 2 Samuel 9, we know that since we are Mephibosheth, we're to pursue Mephibosheth around us and restore them to the degree that God has equipped us to. There's endless opportunities here, brothers and sisters, whether it's serving at the jail, serving in assisted living, ministry, serving the homeless under the bridges, supporting our people who work at TEAM, where's Valley Ranch, and World Orphans. Pick a ministry. It, it looks like a lady from our church who I've seen multiple times at Vienna, and you, you, you walk in and she's surrounded by people that look nothing like her. I saw her Friday, and uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a goth lady. uh agnostic, atheist, they weren't wearing signs that said that, I asked her about it, an and agnostic, an atheist, uh, a, a goth, and a recently uh, recovered drug addict, somebody from our body who is pursuing the people on the margins, people that, that if I'm honest, I might walk by and go, I can't help them. There are a myriad of possibilities within this body to serve those who can't serve themselves. What I love about these ministries and the people that are pursuing folks on the margin, I love the restorative nature. The people who serve those on the fringe and the margin, they treat people with loving kindness, with respect. They're treated like actual people. They're restoring their dignity. Why? not for some social gospel, but because they recognize that the person is created in the image of God and they have inherent dignity and it should be restored to them. So while they love them and tell them about Jesus, it's never far from their mind who they are, who they were. So it's, it's that transformation that God has done in their life that fuels their desire to go pursue and restore That's out there, okay? Sometimes it's easier to serve than to be served. What about letting some fellow believers into your life? The 40, 50 men that I was with this this weekend at the men's retreat. It's hard. It's, It's hard to let people in. What about letting them in, though, to point you to the one who restores? I mean, while in the middle of the struggle... Whatever struggle it may be, have you ever thought, i got to handle this on my own? If people knew what was going on in my marriage, if, if people knew the things that were going on in my heart, if people knew the things that I think, if they knew the things that I do, no. Nah. <laughs> no thanks. I'll handle it on my own. It can't be any clearer than this. I, one, I struggle with that thought too. Two, it's a lie from hell. You're not alone. Allow people to come around you. Allow people to restore you to right thinking. Allow people to point you to the one who can restore you. So we see a temporary restoration with Keith, right? We see a more permanent but still limited restoration with Mephibosheth. To fulfill David's covenant with Jonathan, all that he would have had to do was just spare him. But he did more than that. Sparing him would have been mercy. What David showed Mephibosheth was grace. And we'll get into that with our our third point. David gave him a seat at his table. The king's loving kindness is shown in his adoption of Mephibosheth. Our king's loving kindness is shown in his adoption of us. David takes this access piece a step further in uh, in verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Recap what's led to this. The character of the king is loving kindness. He desires to show his kindness to Mephibosheth due to this covenant. David could have just stopped with sparing, but he invites him into his family to treat him like a son. For David, this means absorbing a lot. It means he's taking on the weakness of Mephibosheth. He's taking on the financial burden of Mephibosheth. David's taking on the burden for future generations of Mephibosheth. Like with his son Micah that we read about in verse 12. He's taking on the repro- or reproach. Can you imagine like, just what we know about Michael from reading through this? Michael's going, really? David, we're, we're here for dinner again. Uh, thanks for picking you know, me as one of the... 30 wives that you choose to have at dinner this night. Uh, And then the awkwardness of, of wheeling in or carrying in Mephibosheth and putting him there at the table. David is loving it, and Michael or whoever else from the household going, Really, David? He's absorbing that reproach. He's taking on the consistent follow-up and accountability with Ziba to ensure that Mephibosheth is provided for. There's much that David is absorbing, but it's due to his character and his covenant that he's going to do it. So I think about the people in our body who participate in safe families, who are fostering, the ones who have adopted. By the way, informational meeting next Sunday after church. If you are a safe family, an adopting family, fostering family, please come come meet with us next Sunday. If you're interested in that, come meet with us after church. Have a little lunch and talk about it. Each one of these families have absorbed some level of emotional, physical, or mental brokenness and trauma. They have taken on and absorbed wounds that they didn't inflict. Why did they do this? We know that marriage is a picture of the gospel, right? It it shows us what it looks like that uh, a bridegroom would purchase a bride and make her spotless. But adoption, that's a picture of what happens as a result of the gospel. These folks know what it means that our king has adopted us. Their actions are an outflow of what's been done for them in King Jesus. So we know what David has absorbed. What about Mephibosheth? What's given or imputed to him from the king? Since he's being treated like a son, he's given access to a new family. He's receiving the king's value. He's receiving the king's worth. He's receiving King David's reputation. He's receiving protection and security from the king. What's his reaction? How does Mephibosheth take this? Initially, it's fear and unbelief, right? Verse 8, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Falling on his feet or falling on his face because his feet are lame. But due to the king's loving kindness, his pursuit, his restoration, and his adoption, we see a transformation take place in, in Mephibosheth. From fear and unbelief giving way to acting out of his new status as one who is like a son to the king. From, from Lodabar to where? Jerusalem. From nowhere to eating at the king's table in verse 13. So Mephibosheth's story, it's, it's a beautiful one. Reflecting the loving kindness that God has for his people. But it's incomplete. There's something specific that lets me know that Mephibosheth's adoption it's 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 limited. The author uses the word like. It bothered me just l- looking at it. I kept, like a son, like that's a that's a simile. It's a comparison. Every translation that I looked at had like or as before the word son. So while that doesn't change King David's pursuit. His restoration or his adoption of Mephibosheth, it leaves us knowing that there's more, longing for more. At the very beginning of our time today, we ask, where, where is this king who could pursue, who could restore, who would adopt? And can I trust him? One of the most startling results of the gospel, one of the most breathtaking effects of the king's pursuit and restoration of us is that he adopts us into his family. J.I. Packer puts it this way adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. J.I. Packer's a smart dude. He knows about justification, he knows about glorification, he knows about any, everything that's taking place in between with sanctification. He says adoption is the highest privilege. I, I tend to agree with him. So, how did it happen? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is, is how it happened. For our sake, loving kindness. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, loving kindness in action, so that in him we might become the righteous, righteousness of God, restoration and adoption. Brothers and sisters, he absorbed your sin, your bitterness, your shame, your anger, your past, present, and future sins. He absorbed your self-centeredness. He absorbed your endless self-reference, your selfishness, your worry, your lust, your hate, your rebellion, your unpayable debt, and any sin that I didn't cover that's yours. He absorbed it if your faith is in him. He absorbed hell for you. He drank the cup of wrath reserved for you. He took it all and he nailed it to the cross. And what did we get in return from this king? We know that we received his righteousness. We know we received his justification. We know we received forgiveness. But but we also got a seat at the king's table. We're adopted into his family. Romans 8 tells us that we have received the spirit of adoption. For what reason? To cast out fear. And it allows us to call the most holy being in existence Abba, we get to call him Daddy. Galatians 4 tells us that we're no longer slaves, but we're redeemed sons and daughters. And the Spirit is in our heart crying out what? Abba, Daddy. How do you describe the change from an enemy to a son or daughter? Tim Keller says the only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Brothers and sisters, do you believe the truth of your adoption this morning? What would it take for you to believe it? Would you believe it if he lived his entire life for you? Would you believe it if he died for you? He did. Maybe you don't believe it because life is crushing you on all sides. The suffering seems to have no end in sight. And you're like, man, Father, Daddy, why, why would you do this? Doesn't Hebrews twelve six tell us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves? He brings chastisement to everyone he receives as a son. It crushes me. When Natu asked me, you always be my daddy? He wants reassurance. It's especially poignant when I have to discipline him and he doesn't understand it. And he says, you, you mad to me? You always be my daddy? I, I long to make him trust me. I long to make him believe me. If I could put my spirit inside of him to get him to trust me. I long for him to see my heart for him. I want him to believe that he will always have my name, my protection, and my covenant love. I long for him to believe that no matter what he does, he will never be forsaken or abandoned by me. He will always be my son. I believe he will grow in the knowledge of that. And someday he's going to trust it to be true about my heart and my character towards him, my said for him. But if that's me in my sinful, blubbering imperfection, brothers and sisters, how much more our father... Do you trust the king has adopted you into his family this morning? Do you trust his character? Do you believe the true king has pursued you, restored you, and adopted you? If so, then you're free. Brothers and sisters, he has. He has pursued you. He has restored you. He has adopted you. See the father's heart for you anew this morning. If you believe this, you're free. You're free to obey him. You're free to act out of your new nature. You're free to eat at his table always. You're free to worship like a son and daughter of a king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the picture of Mephibosheth. You, You didn't have to put this story in your word, but you did you chose to show us your character and your heart through the pursuit and restoration and adoption of Mephibosheth. Father, would you help us believe? Would you continue to pour out your Spirit upon us, increase our belief, decrease our unbelief? Would you give us a spirit of celebration and joy at what's been done for us. Would you, Father, by your Spirit, empower us to live out of this new nature that you've restored to us. Break the chains. Carry away the, the, the shame. Let us rejoice in you, in what you've done, that we can be sons and daughters celebrating you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.